0: Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 35, Eigenrobot versus History, Part 2. Hi, all. I am back once again with Abraham Ash of At History Courses and HistoryCourses.com, where he, as you might expect, has history courses. Um, we, we spoke last week maybe a couple of weeks ago, but I posted the episode last week, earlier this week. I don't know. I've got a kid. Time's fuzzy. Um, And and we're back. Last time, we ended up speaking a lot about Orthodox Judaism and somewhat about history. And my expectation, although, I mean, no constraints, we could end up anywhere, is that this time we'll talk more about history directly.
1: Um, How are you doing today, Abraham? Very good. Very good. Uh, Thank you again for having me. It was a delight to be on last time. So really happy to be here again. Yeah.
0: No, I, I mean, I could do this all day. Right. So um, and until my kids are old enough that I can just talk about stories from history with them until they ask me to stop. Um, <laughs> I've got friends on the internet.
1: Yeah. I can't really tell my wife all these things. So yeah, you know, sit on the internet, talk to another guy, um, whoever's interested in hearing about history. That's what yeah. I'm here for.
0: <laughs> so yeah. So that, I mean, I, I feel like that's, well, there are a couple of places to start. I think maybe the most natural one is, how did you find yourself interested in history? Was there some really distinct moment where you just found yourself asking more and more questions about it or seeking it out? Or, or was it gradual for you?
1: So I've actually thought back on this question many times to try and Determine what was it that set off the spark uh, Because at this point I'm practically an obsessive Yeah uh, So thinking back My earliest obsession And one that honestly still continues today Was actually not history It was animals Hmm All kinds of animals I still love animals And I read everything I could get my hand on I had these big encyclopedias of animals um, I had... Hundreds and hundreds of toy animals. I, I loved the zoo as always. Anytime we had gone on a, a, a trip with my family, I'd always be begging for the zoo. Um, and that got me started on a certain nonfiction work, like encyclopedias. Mm-hmm. A big influence on me in general has been my grandfather. He passed away a few, you know, 10 years back, maybe, but he had a very, very very big impact on my childhood. And I used to walk to his house because he lived around the block from us. And he had uh, the whole Britannica and world book, like these nice leather bound volumes. And he used to let me borrow them. And I was the type of kid who actually sat and read through encyclopedias. Yep, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it's really good. I I don't understand people who use them as a reference instead of a just like enormous set of things that you can learn. Like exactly, systematically. Like just
1: open it up and see what there is. So I used I originally used these things. I had children's encyclopedias at home also that my parents got me, um, and I used these things initially. For animals. And at a certain point I started getting really interested in all the history I found there. And I mean, I'm trying to think of what periods I also, I think it was good fiction stories that I read, you know, Robin Hood or Ivan Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Yeah. Mutiny on board HMS bounty last to the Mohicans. You know, these, a lot of, I I read a lot of classics. My parents got me a lot of older books to read. Yeah. And those books got me very, you know, involved, very engaged in, in the subject matter. And then I'd read more about them in the encyclopedia and it gradually grew. And, you know, I mentioned last time how in my teenage years, when I was in a boarding school, I used to spend hours every single day just sitting in the library reading. And that was exclusively history, sometimes historical fiction, but almost it was always history. And it really just grew exponentially at that point. And really the way my interest still works. At this point, I'm broad, I'm well read enough that I'm really interested in almost all areas of history, Western history, I should say, or Middle East, but you know, China, India, sometimes, sometimes not. Japan, something I'm really interested in, but never really sat down to properly grasp. I mean, I could tell you the basic periods yeah. and things that happened, but I can't really get into the guts of it. But the way it works is something turns me on about a particular era, or person, uh, or country, and then I get obsessed with it for a few months, where I read. Everything and dive down to the nitty gritty to get to know every individual involved, every detail of that country or that time period, and and then eventually I move on and I retain most of the information which I read because I have a, a mental filing scheme which enables me to do that. I won't necessarily remember every date or every name offhand, but I'll know exactly where to look and. And the basic structure. I just want to illustrate this because it could show you how mundane a trigger can be for me. Okay. A trigger. Yeah. A trigger to, to get me involved in a particular oh, yeah. historical subject. Yes. So one of the historical areas I'm still extremely interested in is Ireland. And it wasn't like that for a very long time. I knew nothing of Ireland till I was about 15. When I was about 15, and people are going to laugh at this, I watched Titanic for the first time. <laughs> uh-huh. And they had the music in third class in the party. You know, they yeah, had the Irish yeah, music, I the remember Gaelic that. I was like, well, I like this music. Okay, what type of music is it? I found that. I Googled around. I found out this is Irish music. Nice, okay. So I started listening to some Irish music. I, and then I start listening. I start hearing these folk songs. And I was interested in what they're talking about. And then I start hearing a lot. Yeah, the Irish love singing about losing wars. It's <laughs> well, a, I mean. <laughs> it's, it's a big hobby of theirs. Um, I, you know. And I, I started learning about these things. And after eventually I watched a movie, uh, Ken Loach, and I don't like the man at all, but he made a great movie. It's called The Wind That Shakes the Barley. It's about the Irish War of Independence. And then mm-hmm. the Irish Civil War. It's yeah. a great movie. If you're a history, if you're a fan of history, it's a great movie. Um, propaganda, but all good movies are propaganda. Uh, and I and I got really, really hooked after that. And then I started read Tim Pat Coogan. Um, I, I started reading about the IRA and about Ireland, and then back in time to Wolf Tone. Uh, you know, I really, really, really got very passionately involved in it. For a long time, it was very IRA-themed because I was only approaching it from one angle. That's mm-hmm. natural. Then eventually, I, I I broadened my range and matured a bit. So it was a less, less rah-rah, up, you know, up the IRA and, and a little more toned down and, and nuanced and recognizing the reality of both sides. Uh, but that's just an example of how one little thing a trivial thing can lead me down a rabbit hole and lead to a months or years long engagement with a particular area of history.
0: Yeah. And, and when with Ireland, did you, I mean, it sounds like you went pretty deep into IRA stuff. Did you start in the 20th century and then work your way back or are you still pretty exclusively interested in 20th century Ireland?
1: Right. So I started with, uh, Easter Rising and Irish War of Independence. That that mm-hmm. was so. Nineteen sixteen to nineteen twenty-two. Mm-hmm. That was that was my area of focus, and I I knew everybody's name, or every major rebel's name, and I knew, I read their speeches. I really went the whole way. Um, after that, I moved back because I've always been interested in Tudor England and the Elizabethan. Misadventures in Ireland, you know, with the Earl of Tyrone, uh, it was a major part of her policy. But I never really got my head around it so long as I wasn't interested in Ireland. Once I got a better grasp of Ireland, its geography, its history, I was able to revisit the Elizabethan activities in Ireland and get a much, much more solid grasp of them. From there, I went forward to the English Civil Wars, which was I also a major time. And back to the Anglo-Normans, and and then eventually I moved forward to the the, the troubles. Um, okay, troubles. Really, the more modern, the closer to our day a history gets, the less I'm interested in it because the more it activates lizard brain. Yeah, it turns to politics. I, I think of it more as politics than as history.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the you mentioned this um the War of Independence and the Civil War. I actually became interested in that and never pursued it, but I made a footnote for myself to look into that as a consequence of it being featured in Preacher. There's an Irish vampire, and I think he has some role in the Irish Civil War. I think. I it might might have been another comic, but I realized I had no idea what they were talking about with with the Easter uprising and, and any of that. And I still don't, but that remains my like point of context for, for the entire thing. And I mean, then, you know, also everything with Cromwell and, and with Elizabeth, you know, which I have a very hazy sense of, but it, it is kind of interesting when, when you're learning about, when you're learning about history, how it's very difficult to take these things in, in isolation and once you hear about one thing, you, you almost need to connect it to everything else that's happening at the same period in time in order to really understand the context about what's going on. And it's it's almost difficult to take it piecemeal at all, you know. Like yeah. you know, say, if you were to tell me that there was an uprising in oh I don't know in like the Turin Basin in seven hundred, it would be very difficult to understand the significance of that without understanding everything else happening around it at least for me.
1: Absolutely. I I always say that you need to know everything to know anything. And that's always the way I approach history. You need to know everything before you can even understand the individual components. You have to first take a very superficial skim of the whole picture and then rarify it, rarify it, get more and more deep into it. You can't just understand anything in isolation. A, A classic example Let's say, take uh, take Jamestown, the Virginia colony. Mm-hmm. To really understand what's going on there, you need to know, you need to really understand what was going on in the Spanish main at the time. Mm-hmm. And to understand that, you really need to know the history all the way back to Henry the Navigator in 1415. You got to know the story of the spice trade, the, the, the journey to get around Africa, to get to India. Columbus, the subsequent Spanish conquest of the Americas, that's one area you need to know about. Other thing you need to know about, you need to know about the English Reformation. You need to know about the French wars of religion. You need to know about the problems with the king versus parliament and how that tied into religious tensions and how an outlet was found. That's actually more with the Plymouth colony, but it's the same point. You need to know all these different things. And to understand each of those, you need to branch out to multiple other areas. I mean, you're not going to understand the English Reformation without understanding the Huguenots and without understanding the Calvinists or, or the finer points of the dispute over transubstantiation. You just won't. You need to know all those things. So, yeah, you need to know everything to know anything. So I try to know everything. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so, so what do people do if they? What? How do people start out? Do you think? I mean, it's a little bit odd for me to think about it since it's been so long since I didn't know anything. In in maybe the strictest sense, but say with
1: your kids, how how did they start learning about history? Do you do you tell them stories or? Well, right right now, I only they're very young. I, I only tell them Bible stories now, mm-hmm. um, you know, before bed. Yeah, uh, one of it was actually quite a pleasure to, to tell them about David and Goliath. Um, that's my my one year old daughter's favorite story. She asks for uh. every night when I put them to bed. Um, but what I the way I've approached it, and I've thought long and hard about this, especially since I intend on on homeschooling my kids. I think the best way to first get your feet wet in history is through myth, legend colorful stories movies things not necessarily rooted in fact at all just good stories that are kind of based on what was going on uh so let's say for example uh braveheart is there's nothing historical about the movie (laughs) nothing it's totally a (laughs) historical but but it's a great starting point it's a great starting point to you know Obviously, you can't end at that point, but you need to just, but at least you know now who Edward I is and who William Wallace was and a little bit about who Robert the Bruce was and you You know there was a battle at Stirling Bridge. It kind of gave you an outline, and what's more is it gives you a face because now when you start reading about it, you have a face to connect it to. Actually, the way I, I first started learning about Italy in the 1500s, which was a critical arena of European history, but was through watching the Borgias, uh, mm. there's a lot of ahistorical stuff there. But you you get faces, you start connecting people to these characters, even if they're not really historically true. Then you read more about it, and you you modify your 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 preconceptions. But it's a very good way to start and with kids. You start with with stories, you know. It's very easy. I mean, we talked about medieval last time. Medieval period is very easy to do this with these, you know, dramatic tales of chivalry and and yeah, you know, you don't need to tell them about what hanging, drawing, and quartering actually means. But oh, I might though. <laughs> no, that's actually uh, trust me. That's my approach. I uh, kids love it. Yeah, I, I you know, remember you, know, you tell yeah. them about about Achilles dragging Hector around the walls of Troy. That's that's a big hit. Yeah, you know, kids kids love this stuff. I don't know about girls. Boys love this stuff.
0: Yeah, I uh, I remember when I was thirteen and I I was reading Durant and I got to the part about Persian execution methods and I read about scaphism. Oh but and i, I just <laughs> i mean i just remember like sort of staring in the book like no way for for a solid minute just just delighted that somebody would do something this horrible to somebody else
1: yeah we went to ripley's believe it or not um yeah. in atlantic city uh, i don't remember how old i was i must've been about 10 and they had the uh, iron maiden of nuremberg mm. mhm so with the spikes to poke- now i found out much 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 later that this particular uh, instrument was pr- almost certainly not used in medieval Germany. But, wow, Yeah, my imagination was, went wild. You <laughs> yeah, know, I was really
0: was, disappointed to learn about that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things you wish was true. I mean, the truth is, the Germans in the Middle Ages, e- even if they didn't use that, they were from the most brutal uh, areas in Europe. The, you know, the famous picture of the guy upside down getting sawed in half. Yeah. Uh, the, the serrated saw. That, that's, that's the sort of thing that went down in medieval Germany, breaking people at the wheel. Yeah. It was a really brutal place. Uh, Germany, I mean, you're German, but the Germans, let's just say my vantage point of the German history is not a very uh, flowery one
0: yeah well i mean you know it's interesting like i i have some i have some you know i my german heritage is at war you know i had i had some jewish German ancestors and i had some german you know um christian ancestors and ah uh, it's i'm i'm glad people made up somewhere along the line but yeah i mean the it and actually you know thinking thinking about the like gratuitous cruelty of history, it seems like a lot of that fuels Dan Carlin, or or he's almost the the most purified form of this kind of I can't believe people did this school of history. You know, have you listened yeah. to his
1: stuff? Yeah, he is. It, it's it's um, it's basically uh, voyeurism.
2: Yeah,
1: it's just, it's just It's like you can't take your eyes away. You can't stop listening to these absolutely horrific things that people are doing to other people. This it's like watching a train wreck. You just can't look away. Um, I find that I find that's true with me. My, my thread on Twitter where I have all the historical facts it is full of those types of things. I the first fact that I put in there was the way Edward II uh, was killed, at least according to tradition. Um, they didn't want to make any marks outside on his body.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they inserted a funnel into one of his bodily cavities and then stuck a red hot poker through there and oh, burned out his entrails. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah, nice. You don't mention that on a date unless it's a very specific type of girl you're going out. With. I
0: would absolutely mention that on a date. <laughs> Depends what type. Depends what type. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. I mean, it does. I wonder, I wonder if there is a kind of a, maybe a gender gap in history as a consequence of this, you know, I remember, or, or at least a certain kind of gap in what sorts of things are studied. My, my, I don't know.
1: The women could have been, but women were often quite. Uh, quite brutal. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Genghis, Genghis Khan's most famous atrocity, which was his um, complete... He, he killed every single man, woman, child, cat, and dog in Nishapur in Persia. And he made these huge pyramids of the entire city's heads Yeah, outside the walls. That was actually done um, at his daughter's instigation. Uh, oh, because yeah. Yeah, because some guy on the wall shot an arrow at his son-in-law and killed him. So his daughter said, let nothing in the city survive the death of my husband. So uh, to the pyramids, they went. Yeah. As another lady, at the end of last episode, I mentioned a William de Belém, who was the guy who beat up his vassal and castrated him and cut off his nose and ears because he uh, showed loyalty to a different lord. Yeah. So his daughter- Mabel de Belem was was basically a chip off the old block. She ended up marrying uh, Mon- Robert de- uh, Roger Robert. I'm having a mental block. De Montgomery, who became one of the most prominent marcher lords on the Anglo Welsh border, but she was also known for her cruelty. Uh, women have been some of the cruellest people in history as well. I feel like that's that's look to, look that's not seen in the same way but let's put it like this if a man if a man is passionate and he does cruel things when women are passionate they they most certainly can do cruel things
0: yeah what was what was the name of i have this idea that you might know it off the top of your head there is that um i think she was a french noblewoman whose husband may have been killed and she ended up selling his estate and pouring the funds into a pirate fleet I think this must have been during the Hundred Years' War because the, the target of her wrath was the British. and English, English. Eng- or yes, you I'm were sorry, no English. There were, there were no British, yeah. Scots were on the French side. Yeah, old alliance. Um, do you recall this story at all?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the way I know of it. I'm pretty sure she's a character in, in one of Bernard Cornwell's historical fictions. I, I believe I've heard of this woman. I cannot recall exactly who she is, but yes, she was a wealthy woman her husband was killed and she became a river pirate essentially. she I mean you could check her up uh um, yeah,
0: here we go. yeah, it's uh Jeanne de Clisson, I think
1: um no it, wait de Clisson they were Bretons no? uh
0: okay, well, Oh, they were friends oh shit yeah. Okay, so her husband was executed for treason by the French king, and she targeted French ships, slaughtering the. I'm really impressed that, knew that she was she was uh, from Brittany. Of course, everyone
1: who do, who doesn't,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, me. It's, yeah, no, um, no, no.
1: He got, Basically, that's actually interesting because she's very prominent in the in the the wars around the the French uh, succession. So, her husband, her husband, uh, was. One of the most prominent support, basically at the time, Brittany, the, the Duke of Brittany died and there was his, what was it? There was his niece and maybe his granddaughter uh-huh. or something like that. Yeah. I don't remember the exact uh, a dynastic thing, but she took the side of the people who the English were backing. And her husband, there was a truce. They 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 uh, made a truce at, at Malestra in the in the 1340s. And her husband figured, okay, there's a truce. He could go to London, uh, not not London, Paris, excuse me. Uh, and basically, the French king said, truce or no truce, I'm not letting you go home. And he took him and whacked his head off. Uh. Um. Yeah, and then her son was also very prominent on the English side. So how do you feel about the way that... How how well do you
0: think Crusader Kings 2 captures a lot of these dynamics?
1: Oh, so we started on that. Um, Yeah. Really, honestly, see, they make the decisions they make for gameplay. Personally, the most engaging gameplay for me would be one of bewildering complexity. That's the sort of thing I like. Now there are a few, there are a few things that really ought to be fixed. That really need like that 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 sometimes even could shatter a game. The mo- I mean I mentioned vassalage. I'll yeah. get back to that soon. But the Holy Roman Empire and Crusader Kings bugs me to no end because yeah. it's this massive. It's the most powerful force in the world. When in reality it was much more like Europa Universalis, where you you were barely able to raise an army mhm it was it was really it was pulling teeth even the greatest holy roman emperors really really struggled with getting an army together to do anything there was no centralization there but in crusader kings it's like this massive leviathan that yeah yeah it's why i like the earlier starts but then the earlier starts the map gets so crazy i can't i can't deal with that so oh, yeah, <laughs> an issue. It's an issue, it's a tension I have. I usually just ignore it, but it is what it is. Um, and even worse is in Crusader Kings, uh, the Holy Roman Empire then just keeps growing and keeps taking new kingdoms in. And it's like like come on guys, you got you, you gotta stop. there needs to be a better mechanism for the dissolution of empires. much better mechanism for that.
2: yeah,
0: once once you get an empire set up, it's very hard to disintegrate. I mean, you no, know, it's very hard
1: to keep integrated uh, well, in the game think or in the, real I life. Think, uh, no, in the game. Right. In real life, it was almost impossible to hold together in the game. It's almost impossible for it to break.
0: Yeah. I mean, like once once I get Empire, it's it's all over for it. Ga- yeah, you, yeah, you know, may it's, as well
1: end up. Usually what I end up doing then is turning into a complete raving lunatic. So they depose me and I become a count again. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the way to keep some immersion. But anyway, so that's one thing. The one thing I'd love to see with vassals, I'd love to see more and more options. They, they started doing this in, in Crusader Kings 3. I'd love to see it go more. But I'd love to see lordship tied to estates and territories rather than people. Like mm. I mentioned this at last time. Yeah, yeah. I'd also want to see a sliding point of authority over the estates where at the lower levels... They actually don't show up as part of your realm. They're autonomous vassals and they're, for all intents and purposes, independent, even if they're giving you homage. Yeah. That would be a very, very nice thing to see. And the last thing that bugs me is probably the change they made with Crusader Kings 2 and 3. In 2, when you raised your armies, they popped up everywhere and you had to micromanage and gather them from who knows where and get them all together. In three, they'll pop up in one place, and that's very ahistorical. Historically, it was a logistical nightmare to get your armies together. Yeah, and I love logistical nightmares. Like that's what I live for. That's what that's what I want these games to have.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting you mentioned that specifically because I mean in in CK two, especially you know once again when I got to Empire, I would very deliberately pass out territories and and you know county levels. Far overseas, so you know, say say I was playing as Sicily, as I often did, and I controlled territory in oh gosh, I don't know, Persia or or Mongolia. I, I usually would have um, just free the,
1: him. I just free uh, him.
0: Oh, I didn't. So I whenever I got a so say when I wanted to have a large number of armies available to raise to go and fight China, you know, you you can't move armies across that that expansive step because of the supply limits. So I would I would have a couple of very large um, you know viceroys and then what I would do is I would give each of them a territory surrounding the spawn point for the Chinese army. And then I could raise their levies in that specific territory. And it would give me, you know, the levies for say Andalusia. All of them popped up in a single location. It was quite
1: cheap. But I never gamed the system that way. I never realized you could even do that. Yeah. But but in general, actually, the truth is, CK2, for a very long time, I've only played it with the HIP mod, the Historical Immersion Projects. Great mod mm. for a CK2. But I don't know. they. So they had something called Exclave Independence. I don't know if that was in, in a vanilla or a DLC also. But the idea was if you had an Exclave in the middle of nowhere and the ruler died, it would just become independent. Yeah. Uh. So, yeah, that's th- those are my main gripes, I think, about Crusader Kings. But it's great for historical geography. Yeah, I'd really, I'd, I'd, i That's the only computer game, video game I'd encourage. I can't even call it a video game. You're looking at nothing moving most of the time. But yeah. it's the one game, screen game. I'd say I'd encourage my kids to to get into that. I mean, all the paradox games, the historical paradox games. I think they're really good. That that's another great way, by the way, to you know now you know what Savoy is. Uh, you mm-hmm. know now you know it's nice. It's good.
0: Yeah, no, my my understanding of European geography is better for, say, I don't know, 800 AD than, than it is currently. You know, I roughly know <laughs> where things are, but I mean, you know, France changed to departments instead of, you know, instead of their old feudal geography, and I, I just don't know where anything is anymore.
1: Right. I, honestly, I'm, I'm very good with all of Europe, except for the Balkans, uh, the mm-hmm. Balkans. And honestly, I talk about areas I get into. I don't think I'm going to ever go near the Balkans with a 10 foot pole because you can't, there's, there's nothing, everything's so tainted by nationalism. And I'm not saying nationalism is always a bad thing, but in history, it could really get infuriating because there's no, no such thing as an objective approach to the Balkans. There's no objectivity there, yeah. You know, the only other area that I read about extensively that has no objectivity to it is Israel, Palestine, because I don't need objectivity because I have my opinion. You're right, right. Um, but the Balkans, I don't. So I, I don't. Um, I, it just, it draws me. Actually, speaking of Israel, I'm not. Don't worry, we're not going to go into. What's going on now? I have no desire to talk about that. But we mentioned the IRA earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many don't know this, but in the 20s and 30s, in the 30s and 40s, the IRA and the Irgun and Lehi, so those were the more, I guess you might say, terroristic uh, Jewish militias, um... They who were against the British, they were fighting to throw the British out of Mandatory Palestine. They were mm-hmm. very close with the IRA. Um, the the Lord Mayor of Dublin, uh, Briscoe was his name. He was a Jew, and he was in very very close contact with the Irgun, and he would smuggle them weapons and all sorts of things. The first Ashkenazi Chief Rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Herzog was formerly the chief rabbi of Ireland. And huh. he was very closely aligned. He was called the rabbi of Sinn Féin because he was very closely aligned with... Um, he was personal friends with de Valera. He was aligned with the anti-treatyite wing of the IRA. Uh, he actually learned Gaelic from de Valera and helped de Valera learn some Hebrew. Uh, they were they actually stayed personal friends even after this story went. And so this rabbi was a supporter of the Irgun too. Uh, so there were these really, really close ties, which is crazy now because now the IRA still being a marginalized group, you know, on, on the periphery of, of society, they made yeah. calls with the PLO in the seventies, I guess. Um, and now like in, in Ulster by a soccer match, you'll have the, the Irish nationalists waving Palestinian flags and the unionists waving Israeli flags. Which is seriously, very, yeah, yeah. It's a, oh, really God. a proxy thing. There, um, our Irish republicanism has become very closely identified with the Palestinians, and unionism with the Israelis, and it's a total, total one hundred and eighty from what it was historically. So that's just a little, a fascinating aside. I figured I'd, I'd just stick in once we're talking about the Irgun.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this this I think leads to another question that I have with at least sort of indirectly. So, um, Oh, baby, she'll be fine. Um, so, so I had, I made a claim a while ago that the typical person who goes through school is going to end up knowing like three historical events. I, and even then
1: not well, and
0: not, and even then not well, they're going to know those historical events like as kind of a morality tale, right? The 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 United States went and fought Nazis, the Nazis were bad, the United States was strong and the United States was good and that's why the United States say, you know, should be this interventionist power abroad and this is the context in which I, they're going I find evaluate. it hard
1: to believe that the schools still teach that. When you were in school they taught that. Yeah, uh, they might they might not anymore. I now no it's a Howard Zinn. It's a how it's Howard Zinn's world now. Oh fucking
0: Howard Zinn. I I'm gonna restrain myself, but God, so fucking tiresome. Um it's fine. I'm fine.
1: Is <laughs> that really I'm true? in total agreement.
0: I'm in total agreement. I just what a I mean like you know the the old story that I just mentioned is, is tiresome in its own way, but Howard Zinn, I mean, it's like going from a, like, just because a critique is correct in some ways, doesn't make it more
1: correct than what here is here. We are. I mean, what is 1619 project? If not an extension of Howard's Zinn?
0: Oh, that's a really interesting framing. Yeah, that seems correct. Like Howard's Zinn, except instead of more, instead of Marxist, like more woke and also maybe Marxist. Oh, that really makes me mad. Um,
2: <laughs> Ruining but okay. your okay,
0: Yeah. Okay. So like maybe that's another example, right? Like suppose that you you learn all about history uh, via the 1619 Project or like American history. And now you're, now you're sort of understanding of what America is broadly is the United States is a terrible colonial power that exists to oppress black people. And so like how do you – how how do you think history should be taught or even could be taught to the masses with, with this kind of outcome just being taken for granted or inevitable? I mean, it
1: just seems like, I'm not sure I'm understanding. You're asking how can it be taught without having this effect? Well, no, I'm I'm saying, suppose that this effect
0: is inevitable and my hunch but is that one it most way people, or another. Yeah. So like, if that's, Going to be the case. Like, how could we even, how should history even be taught in schools? I guess saying all of this out loud makes it sound to me like history is inevitably going to be something that's just a matter of indoctrination for giving people a really simple idea for how they should act going forward based on like two three four stories about
1: things that have happened and those are
0: just like the most important things and and this yeah, I mean, is that, just
1: that's that's older that this this point this framing this approach to history is older than recorded history itself almost uh, history itself homer is that that yeah. is what homer is uh that is what herodotus is herodotus is full of these morality stories and all the 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 great chronicles of the medieval times of uh, froissart or um, i don't know uh yeah you know, the, the song of roland yeah every every, every society you know every society's trying to indoctrinate its people with a certain consciousness of who they are and what's appropriate how's appropriate to act and how's not appropriate to act and that's fine in my opinion um, that's a fine way to teach it to them, and not everyone's interested in 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 uh, going really in depth. And you know, as much as we are, but society has an interest in people having a basic sense of of a shared identity, and that has to do with a shared origin story. You need an origin story for an identity. America has a lot of these myths, one way or another. I mean, if you look at what was being taught at the turn of the 20th century, it was just as much indoctrination as a 1619 project is, except that the falsehoods skewed towards things that I would say are actually more valuable and more beneficial for a society. Think, uh, you know, uh, a Washington Irving type of history. Yeah. George Washington and the cherry tree, you know, the drunk Trent, Hessians at Trenton, which never happened. They weren't drunk. But these are all things like, you know, the sober Americans went against the drunk Germans, uh, you know honest George Washington, honest Abe. Mm-hmm. There are these myths in our country's history. There are myths in every country's history, and those are good and fine and necessary. Now, a mature scholar will be able to move beyond that, but for the masses, it's fine. The problem with what's being taught now is that the myths are fundamentally subversive to the country and damaging and, and designed to provoke racial tension. That's the issue with it. It's not that it's propaganda. Every school, kids will always be taught history as propaganda. It's like what I said earlier, the best way to get them involved is with gripping stories, and gripping stories have heroes and villains and take out a lot of the complexity, at least for kids. Adults might do better with a more nuanced story, but kids, this is a compelling story. That's the way it always should be taught. It just needs to be oriented towards productive ends, and that's not what's happening now.
0: Yeah. So this has me thinking two things. The first is that in a major way studying history seems like it might be the most mentally liberating of the humanities in in the sense that just in terms of placing yourself in the world you know when when people think about what kind of story they use to drive their life in some way or another and contextualize how they're existing in the universe i think that there's you know there's religion which is a very profound way of doing that. You know, you're, you're not just talking about yourself in relation to the rest of humanity. Although, you know, of course, say if you're Jewish, there there can be that sort of a component. But well, if you're when Christian you're not just... Too. I you mean, think so? I, I think there's
1: less well, of that. Christ- Christianity has, has an obligation to actually evangelize. Judaism doesn't. Yeah. So there's a, a universalist... At, not to get too sidetracked, but Christianity and Islam both believe that the whole world should be Christians or Muslims, mm-hmm. whereas Judaism also has a vision for the whole world, but the whole world just keeping the basic um, Noahide laws, which are don't kill, don't murder, don't, don't, don't steal, don't do adultery, uh, and so on, uh, where, whereas only Jews are, are called to be a nation of priests and, and held to a higher standard. Uh, you know a higher responsibility so in a certain sense it's actually more parochial because the other religions you know christianity calls for every human being to be a christian Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the way to salvation whereas anyway yeah I, I, i don't want to uh you're talking about uh history being a liberating subject i just want to get it back to there
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, I mean, I'm thinking in particular about you go to school and you learn this, you learn some simple story. Maybe it's a good story, maybe it's a terrible story, and here be good and bad being, you know, sort of measures of its usefulness and, you know, permitting a large group of people to operate together as a group, you know, and cooperate, say, if maybe that's desirable. Um, But, Then you're kind of stepping past that once you start learning more, and you're you're seeing all these subtleties, and you start learning the story. I mean, say historiography, right? How are people putting these stories together for people? What are they even? You know what? What is the story of the storytellers? And I think once you start to see that coming together, you can. I don't know. Things become more complete and and richer, maybe. And you can maybe start to come up with your own idea of how you ended up where you are and, and start making decisions about what is important to you. Does, does that sound right? Do you find yourself doing that in your own life?
1: Um, my education in history has largely been conducted on my on my own. So I'm not so sure I've ever really, I mean, I guess as a kid, I read I, I find it true with other people less true with me myself. Yeah. Um. I guess because yeah, I am breaking out of certain paradigms I grew up with and I, I always am, but, but in a less meaningful sense than someone who really just grew up for, you know, spent their formative years being really ignorant of history because I, I started reading a lot of history from when I was young already. And so society at large's view of history. And I got it from a wide variety of sources. So it wasn't all pushing one agenda. Yeah. So I never really found myself so trapped into a paradigm, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. And I'm thinking a little bit here too about, and then I want to talk more about Chinese history. So if if you're willing to do that or, or talk about how we can't talk about Chinese history, um,
1: They're just very touchy. What could you say?
0: Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, so I've been listening to a, a very long podcast um, uh, on on the history of China. I think it's somewhere in the Ming Dynasty right now. And I guess there are two what one, one thing that was salient when you know, the author was discussing things was that he noted fairly often throughout the podcast that as it's currently being taught, a lot of Chinese history has been reinterpreted by the Communist Party, and and they're doing the thing where you know they're they're looking for a single story to tell in history, and um, you know so 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 they'll try and cast specific people as nationalist characters, which of course you know everybody in history does right, or they'll try and say say the first Ming emperor was you know basically a peasant, like an absolute peasant,
1: and oh look at our own revolution you see the same nonsense going on there yeah oh, look at the way magna carta's framed by by conservative ink it's all it's all the same thing everyone does this yeah what's unique about china is the vehemence with which they do it like there's a real insecurity there i guess i don't know i i think what it comes from is that there's a dissonance because they're used to thinking of themselves as the mightiest, you know, all foreigners are barbarians and beneath them and Mm -hmm. owe allegiance to the heavenly emperor. And since the opium wars, they've been really struggling with the cognitive dissonance of maintaining that and actually looking at the position they occupy in the world. There's a lot of bluster there. Yeah because there's there's cognitive dissonance going on because if you're used to looking at your own culture like that and in those terms and you see much more powerful nations you know stomping all over you're you're going to have to really radically rewrite a lot of the history and 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 reframe the world in increasingly bizarre ways do you think
0: do you think England or or britain or the uk however however you want to slice it up is is or has dealt with something similar or maybe it wasn't as much of a problem for them
1: i mean well i mean they lost their whole emperor but it wasn't as much of a problem for them because the seeds of their empire's destruction were planted almost as soon as their empire was built and i'll explain this a bit but the, English, the British conception of their empire was very Kipling-esque, white man's burden. Um, it was very influenced by, by this idea that we have to civilize people. But the unspoken corollary to that is that once they're civilized, you're no longer needed. And as it became clearer and clearer in the 20th century that various nations were capable of governing themselves and were capable of taking over the reins, it became harder and harder for the British to justify being where they were, and the public at home became less and less willing to take harsh measures against people rebelling against the British. Begin, Menachem Begin, actually writes this in his memoir, The Revolt. He writes that the strategy of the Irgun was basically they knew they're living in a glass house and the whole world is looking in and they can do what they want to the british soldiers and then when britain retaliates britain can't retaliate too much at the risk of alienating its own people in a certain sense it actually mirrors what the palestinians are trying to do now
2: Mm -hmm. but
1: the idea being that In India, Gandhi was a genius at recognizing this, but the subjects of the British Empire recognized this fatal flaw in the British imperial mindset, uh, which is that if you can demonstrate your humanity and your, your civility and your ability to govern yourself, then you're going to fatally undermine the moral case that the British Empire makes for its own existence. So the British people were kind of prepped by that and their own logic led them to eventually not be all that opposed to the independence of their former subjects. It took a bit of violence to boot them out the door in almost all the places where they were, but but it wasn't so foreign to their mentality. Whereas a nation which actually believes that they, by right, um, are their culture is such that they ought to be the rulers of the world, no matter what, they are inherently superior. It's going to be a much harder, much more bitter pill to swallow when they get deprived of that position.
0: Yeah, and it, although it has happened repeatedly in history, right? I mean, you you had you know the the Qing dynasty, you had the Mongols and and the Yuan, and then you had the Qing dynasty, and I mean, even even looking at the late Qing. You know there there was a lot of national resentment but but there were also hundreds of years spent under alien rulers and still somehow this this idea of like um I don't know Han supremacy if if one can call it that I'm not sure that's quite right you cope know sort is of,
1: very resilient yeah cope is very resilient narratives can but there's a Did you say
2: cope or hope cope cope <laughs> yeah.
1: Because a lot of Chinese historiography is coped, from what I understand. Yeah. Um
0: well, I yeah. mean that's true everywhere, right? I mean you look at ancient no, history. I'm not where- saying
1: anything against the Chinese. They they have a magnificent culture. It would be nice if they didn't trash their culture, but they have a magnificent culture. Um I have no problem with that, but like you mentioned, the the way the CCP tries to govern. And I'm active on internet forums. And you know what? The moment someone mentions China, 30 people who never are active anywhere else on the forum jump on you and start attacking you with all kinds of, you know, thing. it's very tiresome. It's very tiresome and, and it breeds resentment. So I'm I i I'm just annoyed by it. I don't yeah. like it. I don't like this policing of.
0: Is that is that true outside of Twitter? I, I, mean, like I've encountered the 50 Cent Army before, but
1: so I guess I've uh, on on the history forums that I frequent, it's very much the case. The other country, I mean, the Balkans are also like that, and mm. the other area that's like that is the Indian subcontinent. I that was going to say the Indian national That place is a nightmare. <laughs> it's not just Indian. It's 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 Tamil and these guys and that guy and this cast. and that. It's just terrible that yeah. that's one of my biggest turnoffs of really diving into indian history just i don't know yeah the post haplogroup types are, are yeah i was saying else. you talk about how many times are you going to go over this whole aryan migration theory like you know move on yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah well i mean you know i guess you live in in at least a culture that has come out of you know really intense interest in castes and Maybe maybe getting access to genomics is the worst thing that could happen. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I, I, I acknowledge what nationalism can do to history because I've read both Israeli and Palestinian histories. And that is an area of history I'm very, very, very intimately familiar with. So I'm able to very easily read through the propaganda I still take a side, but I'm able to easily read through the propaganda on both sides. And I, it also is tiresome. Um, But at least I have such a thorough knowledge on my own of what's of what has been and what is going on um, that it it doesn't bother me as much because I can easily see through it. But in the case of these other societies that are ideologically militarized. um, Oh, that's really good. I don't, that's what it is. I, and I don't have the tools necessarily to break through it. Yeah. So it's very frustrating to read this and realize that I'm reala- reading propaganda but not recognize exactly where the flaws are, what's wrong with it. So that's why I stay away.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: have you
0: I, – I guess touching on on the subcontinent a bit, a few years ago I read – is it David Reich? um who we are and how we got here have you encountered that i have not no okay so it's i'm just going to talk about it for a minute and i'm curious what you make of of my summary but basically there's a guy at harvard who is a geneticist but also a also an archaeologist to an extent and he he basically does ancient genomics so mm-hmm. you know right now you can you can sequence a genome of course and what his laboratory has done is it's basically turned into a factory where they sent him remains, ancient remains. And so he's they, like the Atsy the iceman type of guy, yeah. like that. for for example, he gets in the iceman in there for sure. and And what they've done and and where genomics has progressed to is they um they they've gotten very good at getting intact DNA out of very, very old co- corpses. Um so so in particular, there's a bone in your ear that's incredibly dense and I guess very good at preserving your DNA. So they're able to take these bones from people's ears, crush them, um, you, you know do a polymerase chain reaction, get a bunch of DNA, and then sequence it. And doing this and looking at the divergence of of you know various um, various haplogroups changing over time and being located, within a body of a particular age, you can carbon date, at a particular site in the world, they've they've done a lot of this large-scale population tracking over time. And um, a lot of it has answered some very old questions eh, to varying degrees. For example, um, Bering straight? Yeah, Bering straight, for example. Um, so, I mean, a couple of things came out of that. One thing is that I don't know if you're familiar with the lumpers versus splitters in terms of um, Native American um, linguistics,
1: but vaguely, it's it's a subject that's not just it's not just an issue with Native American linguistics. Yeah, it, it's, it's it applies to a lot of uh, linguistic groups.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so so the thing that was particularly interesting was that if I understand it correctly, um, that there was some some absolutely maniacal lumper who said no there were three Native American language groups and I guess he made some real stretches as to you know what what the commonalities were. but you know when Reich went and did a study of these different tribes, my God, it mapped directly onto this um sort of three three waves of migration that mapped onto these specific tribes and he also found uh, more controversially,
1: I think that I, don't, I mean I- just, just before, just to address the first point before you move to the second point, I don't. I'm not convinced necessarily that uh, genetic variances necessarily overlap with linguistic variances.
2: I think
0: I wouldn't necessarily be convinced either. But if you have, if you have somebody, if if you have linguistics mapping fairly well with Genetic variants. You might expect that there's. It seems like that should strengthen the case that there were similar groups, don't you think?
1: Possibly, possibly could add to a preponderance of evidence. I'm definitely not familiar enough with the field to to have an, an actual opinion on this particular subject. But yeah, I just wanted to put that out there because a lot of times it's taken as a given. Yeah. A different genetic pool is going to be part of a different, and that a lot of that has to do with the whole Indo-European, Indo-Aryan um, paradigm, where in Germany, I'm not talking about Nazi Germany, although it was true there as well, but in Germany in the 19th century, um, that became the, Indo- the discovery of the Indo-European language group. That mm-hmm. was discovered. I forget the guy's name. A British official in uh, in India, in the yeah. East India Company. But um, that's led to that got conflated to racial mm-hmm. categories, and it's been pretty destructive. And I'm I'm not convinced that it's that's where this idea comes from. And it may be true to a limited extent, but it gets taken too far. So again, I just wanted to interject that that may be a flaw. But anyway, keep going. You were yeah. saying the next thing that he says.
2: Yeah.
0: Um so 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 there is the case and the, the interaction between you know these relatively new findings and well, you know, politics, ideological militarization, perhaps, is is pretty interesting. For example, in the United States. Tribes were able to block entire studies of their population, even, you know, not run through a given tribe, but rather just a, a researcher saying, hey, you're a member of this tribe, would you like to participate in this study and be sequenced? So they were able to shut the entire thing down. Um, and I think sort of, of of similar interest is, you know, there is this idea of the the Indo-Aryans, you know, the, the question of their origin, did they come out of?
1: Yeah, Indo-Aryan went out of fashion. Did it is yeah. Oh, now no! Indo European.
0: Is it now Indo European?
1: Yeah, we don't like Aryan anymore.
0: Right. And oh, and I think, I think, uh, Reich actually moved further. The guy's name is Reich. Um, yeah, I was just thinking that. I know. <laughs> um, he, he actually, I think he settled on a name like Yamnaya or something like that. What? Yeah, Yamnaya. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to say. I mean like moving further away from it, great, fine, whatever, whatever you like.
1: Yeah, it could get tendentious. I was I was talking tongue in cheek.
0: Yeah. Um so they they went and they did I, I guess a number of studies in in India, which has very interesting genetic variants across across its various groups in, in a lot of ways. But you know, one of them in particular is that um, they tended to share why haplogroups. or, or, you know, like Y chromosomes or, um, were, were fairly closely related with a lot of populations across say Europe, but then their maternal DNA via, um, via ribosomes was, you know, basically, or not, not ribosomes, but mitochondria was, was basically more or less mapping on to, it was more or less isolated from Europe, which you know, sort of seem to indicate that probably there was a very large invasion of India, which sort of, I mean, basically contradicts this idea that um, Indo-Europeans originated in India specifically.
1: Yeah, yeah, that they originated there. I, again, I'm not holding in the scholarship because it's one of the areas I, I try to avoid. But my understanding yeah. is that my underst- my limited understanding is that there seems to be more evidence that the Aryans moved in than that they moved out. Yeah. But I'm curious about one thing. You're talking about mapping these things out on Native Americans, and I'm not as familiar with the Plains Indians and the uh, South Southwestern Indians, but the Eastern Woodland Indians, I, I feel like it's an exercise in futility to try to map out their uh, haplogroups and so on because— uh, they pr- very frequently practiced adoption into the tribe mm-hmm. when, when the Iroquoian tribes, for example, would defeat an enemy in battle and they captured an enemy. So let's say they lost 30 warriors, 30 braves. So they they'd have 30 of their prisoners who there'd be a choice. The family of the killed would have a choice. They can either adopt them into the tribe as a replacement for the person who was killed. Or they can be ritually tortured to death, uh, generally through sticking flaming splinters into their skin. It lasted a few days. It was what it was a choice. A, the family, the family of the the yeah. So, so there was so there was a lot of cross pollination, to be crude, I guess, you know, between different tribes. I'd imagine. Um, war was a a pretty constant state of life among the woodland indians you know as much as the uh, noble savage people like to make it as though everything was an idyllic paradise before the europeans came they had no problem brutalizing one another before the europeans came and brutalized them
0: yeah yeah no i think i think the strokes that the author was trying to to paint in this book were much broader than that and didn't um, didn't focus on specific regions of North America, but were more related to the Bering Strait and the number of crossings.
1: I know just because the linguistic aspect, yeah, um, is what spoke to me. Because I mean, I don't know again what his framework is, but there are the Algonquian tribes, there are the Iroquoian tribes. Those are the two major groups mm-hmm. among the Eastern woodland Indians. Um, I know there's at was, least there
0: uh, were, they were in like
1: Udo Aztecan. Uh, there, there are other, you know, yeah, there are a lot of language groups going on there. Again, I'm not familiar with his work, so I'm just, yeah, it may, it may be interesting.
0: I, I remember reading it and, you know, it's sort of, sort of eight, you know, eight or a dozen outstanding questions that I had just sort of lingering, seemed like they tied themselves up pretty nice right to the guy. Yeah. So, um,
1: Man. Yeah. Where, where were we? So or anywhere you'd like to be. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked we about Arcadia some.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've talked about sort of, I really like that ideological militarization and we've talked about teaching the kids and we've talked about, you know, how, how we've got, it's gotten started on history. And I guess, I touched on this idea of history that that I have as being sort of um, liberating, and I guess going back to that and, and settling on that a bit, what what is learning a lot about history meant for you? Like, what what have you taken away from it?
1: Well, we we talked about this a bit last time. Um, I, I would say the the most broadly applicable thing I've taken away is the understanding that. Different societies require different arrangements politically, culturally, in almost every respect. And not everything, you know, we got into this, we started talking about American universalism, but not everything's universal. Most things are not universal. Culture, politics, the only thing that might be universal that one can have a case to say is universal is religion, you know, because you believe that all of humanity is bound by something, but all other aspects are completely tied down to, uh, your mode of production, your, your physical state, your geographical location, uh, who your neighbors are, uh, your geopolitical status, uh, the economic situation of your citizens, all those things are going to inform what type of government you have, what type of society you have. And again, it makes one broadly tolerant of the options. And and you don't take anything for granted or assume that any particular political philosophy is inherently superior, except in the narrow sense that you could believe it's superior for this particular society in this particular point of time to have this ideology. Do you think it might make
0: you more hostile? It seems like it might make you more hostile to specific ideologies or or specific, I don't know, trains of thought.
1: To universal claims. To universal claims. Okay. It makes me more open to ideas and a lot less open to the claim that this is the best way to run a human society, which is what all the philosophers go on and on and on about. Uh, all the political philosophers in history. They're always trying to come out with the ideal human society. And this is one thing, I have a lot of issues with Burke, but Burke is absolutely correct in his understanding of a society as building on its past and towards its future and that the rights of any given people are based on their ancient traditions. You can't just, I mean, look, we went in the Middle East. We tried um, giving them, quote, unquote, the best form of government in the world. Freedom, TM. It did not work by any stretch. It totally didn't work. And it didn't work because large segments of the population were unwilling to take it. And there's no reason why they necessarily should have been willing to take it. Uh, People don't recognize how long it took and how how, how it was millennia of tradition, which led to our democracies being what they are today. And I'm not even saying this in a Whiggish sense of that we're evolving and getting superior. Mm-hmm. But it, what we have is based on a bedrock. I mean, you go back, the development of parliament from the uh, model parliament of 1295 till now is... Again, we're talking about uh, a 700, 700, over 700 years of history. And then before that, there was the Magnum Concilium, the Great Council. Before that, uh, the Whigs like to say there was the Witten, which was the Anglo Saxon Council, but that's, as the Whigs like to do, a, a falsification of history. But there was still the, the, th- the Anglo Saxons did have a sense of consent of the governed. Uh, And that came from old German tribal law. So Mm -hmm. these things go back to pre-recorded history, at least in terms of these Germanic tribes. And every generation builds on the previous generation, develops on the previous generation, and reacts. We also have the Norman influence, which came over, which Mm -hmm. came via uh, the Scandinavians and the Franks. Uh, So there's so many fusions. They're all almost all Germanic. I mean, you're talking about Frankish influence, you're talking about Norse influence, you're talking about Anglo-Saxon influence. Um, All all those are fundamentally Germanic, West Germanic. Um, But the point is that it's not like our democracy came from nowhere and you can't just transplant it somewhere. If you try doing that, there's going to be various degrees of success. Eastern Europe, Europe, had limited success with it. Uh, Other countries really never got the hang of it. Because you can't just form or artificially form a system of government without it being rooted in culture and tradition. And a lot of that's subliminal and develops over millennia. You can't just artificially make systems of government or make society. You can't just form a society by fiat. It doesn't work.
0: What do you think of the democracies in Germany and Japan? And like, what do you think went right there to the extent you think
1: those are a good thing? Well, I have a, I have a better, I have a better sense of what I don't like about German democracy, um, it's, it's hard to say about democracy, their democracy as, as their political structure. I don't think that's the problem with German society. The problem with Germany is its location in Europe. It the problem naturally, with Germany
0: is it's full of Germans.
1: Yes, to paraphrase Braveheart again. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. But no, the issue is really Germany's expansionism has always been, in my opinion, the result of it being right in the center of Europe, right where it is. Um, it's at once able to expand in every direction, and it needs to expand in every direction because the outlets, whether it's the sea, the channel, the Adriatic, wherever Germany is going to try to be going to, uh, is an access point to a different region of the world in terms of trade or culture. And it's only natural for them to try to expand. So they probably shouldn't have reunified Germany. Do you? Japan, I don't honestly how Japan became the democracy they became. It's honestly intrigues me. I don't know enough about Japanese history to actually have a strong opinion on it. It's 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 spectacular to me. I told you Japanese history is one of these things I, that that I really want to get into, and I just never had the time. Yeah. At one time, I started dealing with the Tokugawa shogunate, uh, which was very interesting. But I never really had the time for a sustained study, probably because the language is so foreign to me. I, 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 yeah, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with Spanish and French, with the Romance languages and with the Germanic languages. So those histories, which is what we tend to call Western history. Um, they've been much easier for me to, to get my head around. Japan is so foreign of a, of a culture to me. And like I said, I, I, when I learn history, I try to learn everything I can and I need to understand it, a broad amount of background to feel as though I have a proper grip. I'm very perfectionist
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a flaw of mine that if I feel I can't do something perfectly, I don't do it at all. Yeah. Um, so that's why I've never really gotten to Japan.
0: Yeah. Well, I will say Japanese names are much easier for
1: me than Chinese and Japanese it's names ja- are not easy. China has this weird thing where the tone that you say something yeah. changes the meaning. Uh, sorry, not happening. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just I I
0: wonder if one way that you could condense what you were saying about, you know, one thing that you might get from history and and sort of. You know, then contextualizing that with American failures in Iraq is, and, you know, definitely Afghanistan is maybe just to say that culture matters or like culture is real.
1: You know? Yeah. I, yeah. That's, I mean, I think that might it be is bl- what it is. It, and poli- to, to use a, a very cliched phrase from people I really don't like, politics is downstream from culture. Yeah. Who.
0: Interesting. I don't
1: even know where it came from, but I know the people I tend to see saying it.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Um I mean like that has me thinking like it seems like America maybe in some ways is kind of messianic. I mean maybe that's not quite the right term, but it seems like it's driven and and Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? And and the eschaton is everything is a democracy maybe with the subtext that the United States is just the world government. I'm not completely sure that's true and I'm not sure I agree with that. But you know there's this idea of manifest destiny and then there is Wilsonian like promotion of democracy and freedom around the world and the FBI. manifest
1: destiny is very different from the Wilsonian vision, I'll say. The two are conflated often, but it's very different. Manifest Destiny was, we are going to push these people out and get rid of them because they're savages. Um, Wilson's vision was much more of a utopian messianic vision. Yeah. Honestly, honestly, I'm more comfortable with Manifest Destiny than with the Wilson vision because the Manifest Destiny uh, idea is very explicit about what its aims are. And what its methods are. So at least you know what you're dealing with. Yeah. The Wilsonian strain, and it's of course worth noting that Wilson was the first president who was a professor. Uh, You do not know. (laughs) May he be the last. (laughs) May he be the last. Yes. Although is. Have any presidents since then had a, a PhD? Did, did, does Obama have a PhD? Did he? Have he doesn't PhD? have a PhD.
0: He was a lecturer at U Chicago, I think for the law school. So that feels a little on the fence to But me. that's not
1: like, that's a professor. That's pretty much a professor. Although Teddy Roosevelt was also, he wrote a history of the war of 1812, which was very well received uh, by the academic community, but no one ever accused him of being an academic. Yeah. But anyway, Wilsonian... The Wilsonian eschaton is very slippery and slimy and uses a lot of euphemisms. And euphemisms bother me. What
0: are your three most hated euphemisms? Or like your one?
1: Oh, that's that's hard. Mm, I know what I don't you mean though. Know, I don't even know if I could think of the answer to that. I, I I really hate them all. Corporate speak has always irked me to no end.
0: Yeah. It's it's but, a separate
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah my worst euphemism let me think about this a bit My worst historical euphemism' we'll, we'll try to put it in that framing um, liberate okay
0: yeah that's legitimate. I settled on for for myself I settled on acts of genocide
1: well cultural general oh, cultural genocide that's cultural- a bad one. Cultural oh, yeah.
0: genocide. How is that usually used? I'm not so familiar with that. Well, it's
1: used a lot of times in reaction to genuinely horrific attempts to erase a culture, not necessarily through killing them, but through, th- think of the Chinese and the Uyghurs or, or Stalin and ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it's probably a legitimate use, although I think cultural and genocide, the, the terms shouldn't be conflated. Yeah, yeah but it means culturally wiping out of people but it ends up being used like someone you know appropriates uh you know african american vernacular and and suddenly it becomes cultural genocide That almost uh, feels like a
0: dysphemism more than a euphemism
1: perhaps perhaps like but some uh, sometimes it's a euphemism for something genuinely going on yeah or like ethnic cleansing I don't like ethnic cleansing. cleansing is too broad. It's yeah. a, not because expelling a populace and killing a populace, I mean, they're both bad, but they're, they're not just, they're qualitatively different, right? Yeah. I mean, look, population transfers have happened very often and they're not pretty and people die and there's a lot of human misery involved, but that's not the same as taking a population and wiping them out. Yeah, but I they're mean, like they're both ethnic cleansing. Oh, yeah. oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what euphemism I hate: international law, the worst fiction ever foisted upon humanity. I've interesting. What what do you hate about it in particular? Just that it's kind of a farce, and like it's always been a farce. It's been a farce ever since it was invented by Hugo Grotius. He invented it because the Dutch wanted access to the English Channel, and the causes of its perpetuation have always been just as petty and just as materialistic. I mean, look, when you learn that the United States has legislation, essentially making it exempt from the Geneva Convention and from any prosecution uh, of anyone in the US pertaining to war crimes in front of the Hague, and you come to realize that when Pe- countries like the u.s talk about war crimes they just mean when other people do it or when people they oh, don't yeah. like to do it sure it's totally and i'm not even talking about you know firestorms and world war ii i'm talking about even now you know all the talk right now if a u.s officer uh, commits a war crime by law he cannot be extradited to the hog by u.s law so when the u.s talks about international law or about war crimes, which every army has always done in the history of war. It's just a bludgeon to use against its enemies. And the same goes for when the US's enemies talk about war crimes of US allies. Look, not killing civilians is, is, a, is a, an admirable goal in war, but war is fundamentally about killing people. A, let's not forget that. And B, it's very selectively applied. So if a law is selectively applied, it ceases to be a law.
0: What if – okay, I'm actually feeling kind of contrary about this. Specifically – oh, man, I want a beer. Got to go to the gym. Um, what if – like what if everybody is being hypocritical about this? Nobody actually believes in these principles But the fact that somebody else can beat them over the head with the contradiction of those principles actually discourages people from doing things that might otherwise be even worse.
1: So I would have two responses to that. First of all, a hegemon like the US doesn't really worry about that. And any ally under its aegis doesn't have to worry about it either. Uh, Secondly, um, that presumes a rationality on the part of state actors once war starts, which I don't think exists. What about like leading up to war? You know what I mean? Like leading up to war is even more historical than the war itself. Hmm. Look at the war fevers before every major European war of the past 200 years.
0: Was there war fever before World War II? I mean, like, a, my understanding was France was just kind of. Oh, no, tired. Only, only
1: the Axis powers. No, yeah. no, the British and French, that was because. But I don't view World War II as a distinct conflict from World War I. Yeah, okay, that's fair. It, the same, I mean, listen, let's put it like this By the same token that the 30 Years' War is one conflict, World War I and World War II are one conflict. Yeah. You could make the case that both of those can be divided into sub conflicts. And I'm fine with that. But if you're going to tell me that the 30 years war, uh, starting with the Habsburgs fighting against a rebellion in Bohemia and ending with the Swedes and the French, and, and it's it's not the same war, but it is yeah. the same war. It's all part of the same extended conflict. And the same goes for World War One and World War Two. Even the period of armistice, so to speak, wasn't a peaceful period. Japan's aggression, Italy's aggression, mm-hmm. Germany's aggression in the 30s. Spain. Spain, the Spanish Civil War, which is a proxy war. Uh, what was going on between the Russians and Poland?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It, w- it wasn't a peaceful time, and it was all part of the same conflict, in my opinion. So th- there was a war fever before World War One. There- there's no denying that. Yeah. They forgot since Waterloo, the century since Waterloo, they forgot what war was. And uh, they wanted it, and they got it good and hard. Yeah, you know, do you think it definitely seems like
0: there's almost like a tectonic feel to European history after like starting in the early modern period where or define
1: early modern, Westphalia? Uh,
0: even leading up to Westphalia. I mean, I guess say from I guess Westphalia is really the first the first case where you know, there was this buildup of international tension. And then there was an enormous, like destructive war. And then there was this attempt to create a new system that would, I don't know, provide a framework for people to not be at war to the same extent, at least for a while. So, you know, you had Westphalia. And then what came after that? I mean, I guess the war of Spanish succession.
1: Yeah, that's next major war. I mean, the, the Dutch, the Dutch and the French Fought a yeah. bunch of wars, and then of course the Dutch conquered England, which they're in denial about.
2: Yeah, well, I
0: I deny it too if something as embarrassing as that happened to me.
1: But <laughs> so it was, it was like, imagine if the Belgians did it. Oh, <laughs> till wagging
0: the dog. But then, like, okay, so like Spanish succession, and then maybe maybe the Seven Years' War.
1: Well, there uh, were four major wars with Great Britain and the Continental powers in the 18th century.
0: Were there four separate ones? I mean, what were the other? Yeah, I
1: mean, let's, let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head. So there's the War of the Spanish Succession, which ends in uh, which ends with the, the Treaty of Utrecht. Yeah. There's the War. Um, there's there's the War of Jenkins' Ear, as it is in American history. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was the piece of of Chapelle.
0: That sounds right.
1: I, I placed um, that
0: later in history, but that's that's that seems correct. That was
1: fairly minor, wasn't it? it Well, it was, and there was a war of Austrian succession.
0: Yeah. Oh, right. Austrian. Mm -hmm.
1: So that's a big deal. Um, There was also, then there was a seven years war, which was a a Titanic struggle. Yeah. And then the revolution, which had a European theater as well. And then there were also wars between uh, Austria, between uh, uh, Prussia and its neighbors. Yeah, so independent of of Great Britain or well, Prussia was involved in almost all the wars. Uh, but anyway, you're, so you're talking. I I, I want to hear how you're developing this. Uh, this yeah, concept.
2: yeah. Well, it,
0: it it feels like there are maybe maybe you could maybe you could think of them sort of in the same light that you have um, with Thomas Kuhn, where you have uh, where where you know he he demarcates revolutionary science versus normal science where you have wars about or where where you have you know science arguing and developing a, an overall framework for how to understand the world and and how to yeah I, I guess just frame all all of the information that that a given field or science generally takes in and then you have normal science where you're you're sort of filling in i'm not exactly coloring coloring in the blanks but you have a general understanding about what's happening in a system and you're just trying to figure out the particulars and i wonder if you could sort of think of a lot of these wars as either you know resolving a major systemic sort of a major conflict about what exactly the structure of europe is going to be versus sort of just f- smaller fights around the edges to gain power over some rival or another or to you know, solve some dispute or another, but not to actually upend the apple cart entirely.
1: So, yeah, I mean, in the early modern period, uh, the, the the Reformation was the big issue and the question yeah. of religion of Europe was at stake. I would say Westphalia is not your first example. Uh, the Edict of Nantes, the end yeah. of the French wars of religion is really where you first have this idea where, okay, the Huguenots are going to be granted um, certain rights at least temporarily uh till they got powerful enough to revoke those but right are going to be granted certain rights uh henry of navarre did this sham conversion to catholicism just to satisfy uh you know the fundamental laws of france and everyone was too exhausted so they settled down that's kind of what happened in westphalia too where everyone was too exhausted from the 30 years war. I mean, we're talking about Germany lost like 40% of its population uh, during that war. It was a, it was a horrible war. Everyone was so exhausted and bankrupt that they just said, you know what, whoever the local guy is, that's what the religion is. and, And we're all just gonna, gonna deal with it. And that upended that effectively spells the end of the counter reformation. So far as I'm concerned, because, there's no more reasonable hope of overturning Protestantism on the continent. Mm-hmm. Realistically, it was probably this way before, but that was the recognition of it. You know, you know what the ruler is, that's the religion. And and, and that kind of spelled the end of the old paradigm. The other thing that Westphalia introduced um, was the concept of balance of powers. And balance of powers is obviously a a premise in medieval um diplomacy as well it's very intuitive if someone's getting too powerful you gang up mm-hmm. but for a- to actually be institutionalized and actually expressed in those terms is a post-westphalian thing
0: yeah so i don't know i guess i guess i'm almost i tend not to develop ideas in gory detail and write essays about them. I tend just to have ideas. This is a little bit to me, sort of, sort of in the same way that you might look at the American party system, right. Or, or the series of American party systems. So, you know, you, you have your first party system with, I mean, basically what just the federalists, right. And, and, and sort of the, the Washington regime. And then the second party system that oh, started.
1: The Jeffersonians were quite active during yeah. Washington's uh, term. I mean, the whole, uh, the letters uh, yeah. concerning the french revolution both sides were accusing the other one of of seeking to overthrow the republic so it was pretty there was uh, p- partisan politics were as nasty then as they are now
0: yeah but i mean like just just sort of the dominant players and the themes that they kept hitting in major elections right so so jefferson won in something not exactly like a blowout. When when did the second party system start? Was that with Jefferson or was that with Jackson? Jackson. with Jackson. Jackson this, the whole
1: thing disintegrated, right? And Jackson, well, Jackson kind of blew it up too, but yeah, he he Jackson's the one who actually created the modern the, the party as we know it, right? Because there were factions with Washington, Adams, Jefferson but they were factions that the apparatus of a political party running an election and having candidates down ticket. This was a, this was a Jacksonian invention. He was brilliant. His genius was in institutionalizing election campaigns. Yeah. You know, the central party that people give money to that pays for elections. Mm -hmm. That's a Jacksonian innovation. Yeah. So
0: and then and then there are a series of other party systems. I don't remember all of them. I think Lincoln and and the Republicans blew up the Jacksonian system. Um and then what there was this period of long Republican There a period
1: where the Republicans absolutely dominated. Yeah. And they started losing it and they explicitly stole an election to keep it. Yeah. And the Sam Tilden. Oh right. Yeah. And that Ruther was fraud, Ruther fraud B Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> Did they actually call him that? That's what they called him then. He was called <sighs> Rutherford B. Hayes. The South actually threatened to begin another civil war uh, when tensions were high. Uh, the election of eighteen eighty-eight. What happened was there was fraud on both ends, really.
2: Yeah. But the, the, the
1: the Southern Democrats intimidated blacks and Republicans from going to vote. So the Republican and the legislatures were democratic. And the Republican governors, they basically just said, "Haha, we count the votes," and they just threw out any votes they wanted and added votes to the other side, mm-hmm. and just did whatever they wanted because no one was on top of them. And they sent competing slates. And then there was a case of in in Oregon, um, one guy died, and, and then there was a question of who should be nominated to replace him. I think there were twenty one. Um I don't remember the numbers. this I'm totally shooting from the hip here. These are r- rough approximations. I think there were 21 um, votes in the electoral college up for grabs in f- I'm gonna say four or five states. Mm. And there was a margin of maybe six, five, very low. And th- there was made that was the biggest constitutional crisis the country ever had other than the Civil War, in my opinion. Yeah, and finally they they agreed to arbitration uh, with a justice on the Supreme Court, who the Democrats were fairly sure would rule in their favor, and then the guy went ahead and ruled against them on every count, and they basically had to accept the the Republicans had to concede the end of Reconstruction, mm-hmm. and the Democrats had to concede the presidency. In exchange yeah. also for like a rail line through the South, which was never built and a bunch of other stuff.
0: Yeah. So, um, so it's then I American parties. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so we've got these systems, right? Then, then eventually FDR came and, and sort of ended this long period of Republican ascendancy and, you know, instituted this, this long period where Republicans often won the presidency, but, I well, mean was, how, there
1: were chinks in it already. There were there were chinks in it already from the 1890s. Yeah. Uh Grover Cleveland.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean it's none of these things are absolute,
1: right? Yeah, but FDR but, blew it up. FDR really yeah. blew it up. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, that continued until the 60s with with the Southern strategy. And, you know, that began this this period of, you know, massive realignment. And you know, with within each of these systems, there's, you, I think you can see kind of, yeah, there there are changes that are made on the margin with, especially every presidential cycle, and you know, different presidents have different relationships with, you know, these party systems that they're working in. But I think it's not crazy to imagine these things as being somewhat coherent and co- somewhat cohesive and like a you know, sort of a framework in which normal politics is done rather than revolutionary politics.
1: So you call Jackson or FDR or, you know, you'd call them revolutionary and um, Benjamin Harrison is is pretty tame. Pretty, yeah,
0: is like pretty normal politician, right? Um, So I don't know. I mean, I, I see sort of these, it seems like it's some kind of a pattern where people will argue over what kind of a system we have anyway versus argue over the particulars about, you know, what is happening within that system, whether it's science or whether it's, you know, the American political system or whether it's, you know, the the entire grand politics of Europe. And I mean, it seems like at least in in terms of geopolitics, it's usually when, when there's some kind of an argument about what the system even is, it's usually resolved by
1: an enormous war. Well, wars, wars are different. Politics is 100% like that. Wars, a lot of times, major wars, I'm thinking about the, the major wars, not World War II, because I think that's directly born out of World War I, and that's a fairly uncontroversial point, but yeah. World War I was machismo. That's all it was. Um, yeah. The French Revolutionary Wars, I would say, are the last wars that are truly, World War II, if you see it in isolation, was a war about what type of world we're going to live in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but 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 before that, the Napoleonic Wars, the French Revolution, really, yeah, was a war about you know all those wars from from 1791 I think it was till Waterloo was about what type of world we'd live in.
0: Uh, so wonder, yeah, yeah. I wonder. I wonder if you could look at the war period from World War One to World War Two as becoming about what kind of a world we were going to live
1: in. You know, You're developing into that. I think that's fair because World War II was without question, uh, took on the characteristics of a crusade very early and very strongly in a way that almost no other war in human history has. I mean, I'm saying Perhaps crusade, and I'm comparing it to the crusade, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it yeah. in this sort of righteous cause of, of the cause of all humanity. I guess you could say the wars of religion were like that, but the wars of religion were very, very tainted by personal interest uh you know no one really thinks the prince of condé was a very pious you you know huguenot antoine of bourbon his father uh just randomly converted when it suited him uh henry of navarre converted when it suited him uh you know the 30 years war for sure the alliances you know the french allying with the ottomans there's nothing there's no purism there yeah um World War II really became a war against fascism. It really became a war. And, and in this, this is one thing where I actually take the official history line, where, where World War II was truly a war. I wouldn't say I necessarily consider the Allies good, as in, you know, capital G, good. But it was definitely a force of good versus evil in the sense that the Axis powers were truly evil. And this goes with the Imperial Japanese too. What the what the IJA did to the people they subjugated is appalling. And what's wild what's wild about World War II is that just forty years earlier, when Japan was rising, after the Battle of Tsushima, Uh, when they smashed the Russians. So Admiral Togo was so chivalrous to his defeated enemies. The Emperor Meiji uh, has some uh, statement along the lines of, you know, when you act in war, don't act as wild animals because then your opponent will lose all respect they have for you. There was this real idea of chivalry. And then uh, during the early 20th century the concept of bushido got very twisted and and it got seized on by nationalists and turned hyped up into something obscene which it never was and so by the time world war 2 broke out there was this resentment and this new religion so to speak which rose in Japan you know with the trappings of the old ways but it was fundamentally a new religion and the japanese army just the savagery if you read the accounts of the rape of nanking yeah it, they're disturbing and i'm not someone easily disturbed i uh, you know we talked about this earlier i'm all into reading all about these gory details but just what they did to women and kids and you get all these details
0: you know that this, this has me thinking like you know they there are these contrasts that, that you hear, like, you know, the war in Western Europe between Germany and, you know, the United States and France and British troops was almost gentlemanly, so they say, compared to what was, for example, happening on the Eastern Front, right? I mean, you you have the Nazis moving into Russia and through Poland killing and killing everyone. More or less killing everyone or deliberately starving them. And then you have the Soviets coming back and invading invading and killing in everyone Germany else. And killing everyone else. I mean you hear terrible things, right? And more thing you know, than
1: killing, but yeah. The, yeah.
0: Yeah. The and, yeah and, and Are and there
1: even, stories of them nailing German women to wheels yep. and rolling yeah you know, yeah.
0: Yeah. And and, and 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 you know, like in the case of the Soviet Union, you know, headed west and I think probably in all of these other cases, but definitely in the case of the Soviet Union, there was really there were deliberate propaganda efforts among soldiers to spur this kind of behavior.
1: And but against Nazi Germany you didn't really need that you, you didn't need it. Yeah. You really didn't need it. I, the truth is no one believed what Nazi Germany was up to till the war was done. I mean they they came into Buchenwald or they came and they saw you know the Americans. And yeah. It, it boggles it boggles the mind. Um the only other conflict which similarly boggles my mind in terms of what people are doing to other people is uh, the Rwandan genocide. Really? That one's hit me very hard when I read about it.
0: What about the Mongols? Is that just too distant?
1: It's distant. And also, these are people with no commonality, steppe tribes swooping down, striking tower. Most cities were not killed by the Mongols. The idea was you made examples of a few major cities, and then everyone else just opened their gates to you. Yeah. That was the general general approach the Mongols took. Um, World War II was a war of annihilation. And the Rwandan genocide actually strikes me because these are literally next door neighbors who are living next to each other for who knows how long. And just because one group is perceived as being a higher class or more aligned with the colonialists and, and just – the way that destruction fell on them, and with no with no regard whatsoever to to sex or age, it is it is a really horrifying conflict to read about. Uh, the Bosnian, like what went on in Bosnia, doesn't strike me the same way because that falls under the more normal parameters of war. Yeah, hostile populations that you kill with impunity, but in Rwanda and in and in uh the Holocaust, both against the Jews and the and the Roma, it, these weren't against combatants. It's just against people.
0: What about like um so there were things like Sicilian Vespers? I I guess that was probably mostly a garrison, right?
1: Yeah. Or, yeah. Garrisons uh, killing garrisons is no big deal. I mean, you know.
0: Or what about um I can't remember the term for this but where I think Mithridates ordered all Roman citizens in his territory killed like sh- surely did, does that not strike in the same way
1: No it doesn't because it's in it's in the shadow of a much greater geopolitical threat Yeah uh, where Rome is what Rome is uh, I mean look after after the uh French lost the battle of Crécy of course, they didn't blame themselves. They blamed the Genoese crossbowmen who were outranged by the longbows. Right. And so the King of France actually ordered to kill all the Genoese mercenaries hanging out in France. So their fellow soldiers in the garrison just fell on them and killed them, which was a major self-own because no one wanted to fight for them anymore. Yeah. Incri- um,
0: I had not but, been aware of that.
1: But yeah, after Crecy, I mean, look, Crecy was so shattering to the French that they needed some excuse. It was, they hadn't been defeated like that ever. It was to, to date at that point, it was their worst defeat ever. Yeah. (sighs) And then they got, and then it, then it got exceeded 10 years later.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Uh,
0: That hearing about those battles was always really important to me. And I don't know, like maybe high school, we thought we thought crazy and and Corps were just 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 the coolest things that that we could have encountered. I wonder if there was more historically and like in recent history more more of a sense of identification with England than there is in the United States today. Like, what I was do you mean? Learning, you mean for Americans to for identify Americans? More? Like, okay, so the Revolutionary War hits, and then it's like, yeah, okay, you know, fuck the British, but. Up until that point, you, you're almost learning history. You're almost learning the history of your own institutions.
1: And well, it is. In, it is. Yeah. Every American every American should be learning, should be very thoroughly grounded in English history up until, every historically literate American, should yeah. be very grounded in history up until 76. After, what, after 1776, frankly, it doesn't matter what happened to Great Britain. But yeah. before then, as an American... It's critical to understand what happened because again, and this we went through in some depth last time. That's where all of our institutions come from. And almost all of our cultural sensibilities come from England. Uh they they develop, they're obviously distinct at this point. Um, at this point, we're merely cognate with them. You know, we're cousins, but um, there's definitely there's a kinship, there's a big kinship in the U.S. to to England. There still is. What do, what do you think the obsession with the English royal family is? British royal family. This, I absolutely don't this- understand that. <laughs> I don't understand it because they're a bunch of wastrels. But um, putting that aside, yeah, you know, we don't. We're you know, the two of us aren't very keen on pomp and circumstance. But if you are the British monarchy is very impressive to look at. But the point is yes a lot of Americans I mean look at Brexit, look how passionately Americans got engaged on the question of whether Britain should remain in the EU. Brit, you know people in Britain getting enraged about Trump makes more sense to me because the. US is, is a global player in the sense that whoever's president of the US has a real impact on the entire world. But for Americans to get so exercised about Brexit, and I know I did, I was actually studying in Israel at the time, and I stayed up all night watching those results come in and celebrating. Um, Apologies to all Remainers listening, but I was really, really hyped about it. And people were really upset the other way. There was an outpouring of woe uh, that was only surpassed by Trump.
0: I yeah I remember I remember where I was when I heard how the vote had come through, and I mean you know I'd been reading about it, but I was also not expecting it to pass. I I think just because I wasn't paying especially close attention to it, and so I was just getting the usual. You know,
1: Scotland's referendum. I remember that one too. I was pretty young then, yeah, teenager, and I was reading this um, online. And now was all like, yeah, go Scotland! It was the dumbest move possible to vote for yeah. independence, but it's like, yeah, go, go, right, you know, brave heart, Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's there is something
0: kind of exciting about it. Like, even if it's a terrible move, if if it's not happening to you specifically, there's there's a certain kind of voyeurism that that comes with it. Yeah, why do you that think I, people watched gladiator fights? Right. Yeah, or like car crashes.
1: You know, people. People just kind of like watching the world burn. Just well, a this bit. is no. This is this is not tr- liking to watch the world burn. This is getting a thrill out of watching other people take on what you perceive to be heroic odds. Yeah. There's a thrill that you get at that trope in a movie or a book or in history of the lone man standing in the face of the the charging army. Or you know, it's really thrilling to see. Um, it, it moves the male heart. I can't talk for the female heart but you know it definitely gets a guy going
0: I think I think there is something that maybe voyeurism isn't quite the right word but like something big happens and there there just gets to be this energy almost in the air where it's like aha something is finally happening
1: oh like we know? were all rooting for war between the uk and france over over the channel Isles.
0: yeah for example right like okay this that is gonna fun. be interesting yeah yeah and it's like you don't really want a war because you know what it means but there's a part
1: of you that that's yeah, like well yeah, a, deep, a, there's guilty, a, war, a guilty feeling in you that you just want to see chaos uh not happening to you but yeah but but I'll tell you what it is. It's 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 um modern man's thirst for adventure. Oh and yeah, such an sure. adventure deprived environment that um you know we crave it, and if we can experience it vicariously through others, even better because there's no danger to us because we're also soft. So this is the best of both worlds. You get to watch a war, and you don't have to participate in it.
0: Yeah, you know, and I wonder how much of that there is. I, I guess maybe. I should probably take off in in a minute. my baby's crying, and um, I do want to actually get to the gym tonight. But I wonder if there's a bit of that just in studying history too. you know, like I can read, uh, I, I can read a history of the late Song Dynasty you know, the southern song, and you know, all of the squabbles that they're having with the gene in the north, and just sort of knowing. That just outside the borders of of you know what was Imperial Han, Genghis Khan is unifying Lux Mongolia. Menace, right? And you can just you can just see these people squabbling like about like Yeah, it's exactly like that, right? And you just know this is going to happen. And there's this anticipation for an absolute nightmare. It's like when you over. hear
1: that the guy's going to write his novel in the hotel built on the uh, the Indian cemetery. You yep. kind of know where it's going. Yep. It's, it's
0: like just waiting for Godzilla to show up on the screen in, in a kaiju movie where it's like, this is going to happen. Some buildings are going to get smashed. Nobody knows it yet, but here it comes. And I, I can still get that out of history. Just, just, and maybe it's just, just a good story, right? Maybe it's just seeing this tension coming, seeing people step onto the stage seeing them work through their roles and, and you know mouth their lines.
1: I don't know. Well, that was Vespasian's uh, final words. Was that Vespasian? or? I believe it was Vespasian. I thought it was- He said, uh, I, I hope I put on a good, uh, so ends the play, I hope I put on a good show or something like that. Oh, shit. I thought that was Augustus. It was one of them. It was either Vespasian or Augustus. Uh, I read it in Suetonius, I think. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna check this up now. Okay, yeah, let's resolve this. <laughs> um, Vespasian was known for witticisms. That's why, you know. Um, Vespasian. Oh no no no! Vespasian's last words were, "I think I'm becoming a god." Oh, I knew right. he said something funny. <laughs> I knew he said something funny. <laughs> Right, right. It was Augustus who said uh, that he's the actor exiting the stage. Mespasian said, I think I'm becoming a god. Uh, yeah. Look, for fire. me. For me, the he had hilarious lines, by the way. The, but for me, the one big area in history which really speaks to me in that way that you just described is the Black Death. Mm. Uh, because you read anything happening before the Black Death or any records, or any, it's like, okay, these guys don't know what's about to come. But half their world is about to die in two years. Uh, good luck dealing with that, you know. Yeah. Event. And just yeah. like, man, I wonder what happened to that peasant whose tax return I just saw, you know?
0: <laughs> well, and you can and you can honestly I think that's something that if, if you downloaded the expansion that has all the diseases in it, that that I thought Crusader Kings captured very well.
1: Where? Who? three is three is two, lost yeah. a lot of the dying things they need to up their game on that. i know right but but two like i want it, what i want by the way what i want is a customized screen where you can choose and it says uh they bring so-and-so in front of you and you command so-and-so shall be and there's a text that you can write he shall be hang drawn and quarter and then it writes so-and-so was hanged, drawn and quarter by your he was um you know cut apart into 30 pieces and he, you know that's what i'd like fed to wild boars uh, that that's what i'm waiting for
0: someone has surely made a mod for this
1: could be could be i i don't really focus i don't have so much time to play now uh, i know I yeah, like running in the background while i'm doing other things and i occasionally check in and and, and meddle around a bit uh, yeah you
2: know
0: um but yeah i i mean just just closing that up i mean like If if you have the entire if you have a large portion of the map visible and say you're playing as England, you know, like you can just see it creeping across the entire map and you know, country after country just turning red as I love touring
1: I love touring some minor country. Look at each noble family in there and how many people kick the bucket. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Okay, these guys lost four people. They lost their heir, they lost the thing, they lost yeah it's a lot of fun actually um watching people die in crusader kings is very satisfying
0: it's so gratifying <laughs> okay cool on that note i'm gonna right. log off but hey it is as always been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and and we should yeah. set something like this up in the future if you want to talk a uh,
1: delight yeah i mean I are not going let's 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 take it a little easy but yeah, um, yeah absolutely look i could do it every night i don't mind but let's uh yeah well hey any i mean We've got our lives.
0: Open invitation if, if you want to shoot right. the breeze for a couple I, I hours. Will, I will you
1: contact know. you, but you're not going to read your emails. So I'll just contact <laughs>
0: you. <laughs> yeah, it might be easier to at me on the timeline.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise.